the boys uh the boys traveled with me yesterday up to Atlanta to uh to graciously attend the uh Letterman's weekend festivities it was the um it was the basketball game that Tech played and and uh and afterwards they had a Letterman's game they they asked me three different times the folks from Tech if I would play in the Letterman's game and um I just simply said, my boys would rather I not play in the Letterman's game. But, uh, but I was, I was a, uh, I was a, uh, I am, I was a letter winner at Georgia Tech as a student. And, uh, and some of you know that um, it, was, it was interesting yesterday. Um, uh, halfway through the first half, they invited all of the all of the former players and managers and trainers who had who had you know been on the basketball team in the past who had come back to this to this weekend to um to to file out on the court and so there we were lined up um, in the tunnel and then they call us out and it was a very different feeling it was a de- very different feeling than I normally had when I would walk out on the court as a student equipment manager. And it's not, it's not what you think. Um, it wasn't different, you know, because, uh, you know, because all these people were cheering yesterday and everybody's standing up because I really get that every afternoon when I come home. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't that that was different. It was, um, it was yesterday when I walked out, I didn't have, like, really any responsibilities. And as I was thinking about it, all the times that I would walk on the court as a student, and it's, it would have been, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it, a thousand times that I walked on the court as a student, I, um, I always had a hundred things going through my head. And most of them were things that I was responsible for. As a, as a, as a student manager, you know, um, you're, you're, you want to make sure that, you know, uh, uniforms are right and backup uniforms are in the right place and water's ready. And um, uh, I had some, uh, as, the, as, the, as the head manager, I had some specific jobs. Uh, I, I kept um, on a little note card, I kept up with uh, all of the personal fouls that, that our team would have. And then, and then some of their better players on the other team. And if, uh, if one of our players, you know, got, got two fouls in the first half, I'd have to go directly to Coach Cremens and, 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 and tell him, Coach, you know, Matt has two fouls. You got to get him out because, um, because they might be focused on something else and not keeping up with that. And so, so I, had, I had responsibilities. But, but in addition, when I would walk on the court, I had my own responsibilities. I also had some other people's responsibilities. Like, um, and I brought this silly little bag here as, as, a, as a sort of an example of it. Um, at, at Tech, we were not only responsible as managers to carry all of our own equipment, we were also, which, which meant some of the coaches' equipment, but we were also responsible for carrying all of the players' uniforms, right? Because you, you wouldn't want them to forget. And, and we were also responsible for, for, for sometimes carrying the players' shoes, I mean, like, 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 you know, like literally a, a guy would take a pair of sweaty shoes off and give them to us on a Friday practice before we would get on a bus and go to the airport and fly to play in North Carolina the next day. And, and, and so we're responsible for like their shoes, which, which sounds like it's a silly thing, but, but there was one weekend where we get to Boone, North Carolina, and I got to go find a pair of 12 and a halves for a certain particular, very 
particular and picky point guard from New York City, and he doesn't want just any Nike shoes. He wants the best Nike shoes, and I'm running across town in Boone, North Carolina, trying to find a pair of shoes. And I, and I look back on it, and I can appreciate, I can appreciate that, that there's an element of keeping up with their stuff uh, reflects back on me, because if they don't have their uniform, then that's my fault. But I, but I, also, but I also look back and wonder, did we do for them, these players, these young men, did we do for them everything we could have to help them develop when we had people doing some of the basic stuff for them that maybe they should have been doing for themselves? And, and, and any number of you um, uh, know a lot of what I'm talking about from the world of college athletics. But then I think any number of us also know what I'm talking about not just from sports or basketball or football or baseball, but, but, but from life itself. Where, where do we draw the line between carrying our own stuff and carrying other people's stuff? Paul talks about that. And so before we get to our gospel lesson this morning, I invite you to turn in the scriptures with me to Galatians chapter 6. I can, uh, I can tell you that... Um, that I didn't lose my voice at the game yesterday. It was already gone. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced it's something about uh, the lack of humidity in the air, and I wake up in the morning, and my voice just gets worse. And so here I am, uh, and I invited, um, I invited six other people to preach this sermon for me, but when they saw the opening story about Georgia Tech, nobody wanted to touch it. So, so you got me instead. This is Galatians chapter 6. Listen to what Paul is teaching the church about how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if a person is caught doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves so you won't be tempted too. Then he says, carry each other's burdens. And so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the word in Greek for burden here is like baros. And it means like, like a physical, tangible weight that you can, like, like you can pick up with your own hands. So it, it, Paul says that we fulfill the law of Christ if, if, if we will help other people with the weight that they are carrying around. Right? Good. Good. Next verse. If anyone thinks they are important when they aren't, they're fooling themselves. Each person should test their own work and be happy with doing a good job and not compare themselves with others. Then Paul says this in verse 5. Each person will have to carry their own load. But a lot of translations will actually say the word burden again, which matches the earlier word from, chapter, from verse 2. The interesting thing is, and I like the fact that the common English translates it differently, is, is that while some translations translate it as burden both times, it's not the same Greek word. The first time, it refers to like, like a weight that you can carry. The second time here, it says, it says each person, and this is, the, this is the best translation in the Greek that I can come up with, each person is responsible for their own and the, and the word is like invoice. Each person is responsible for their, for their own like, like, like 
like manifest as they enter the ship. Each person is responsible for their, their own list of things. And it does mean burden, and it means weight, and it means load, but it means the fullness of it. The, 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 the commitment we have to carry our own stuff. So, so I don't believe that it's contradicting itself. I believe it's saying one thing about our relationship with others and another thing about our relationship to ourselves. And I believe that, that it is, I believe that this passage of Scripture by Paul refers back to the very ministry of Jesus and what he saw and didn't see and, and dare I say, even what he was thumbs up for and what he was thumbs down for. And so we find ourselves this morning as we read through the life of Jesus back in Mark's gospel. So if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 3, we pick up just a couple of verses after where we left off last week with yet another of the stories exposing the controversy between the Pharisees and religious leaders of the time and Jesus himself. It says, Jesus returned to the synagogue. A man with a withered hand was there. This is Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Wanting to bring charges against Jesus, they were watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, Step up where, you can, where people can see you. Then he said to them, Is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. Now, just let me pause here to say, for the context of it, there is not a single passage in the Old Testament or anywhere in the rabbinical law that was later on added and to interpret the Old Testament. There's not a single passage that these Pharisees could ever point to that would suggest it is illegal to save a life on the Sabbath. They kept up with all kind of stuff. They kept up with the number of steps you could take uh, in modern interpretation. They, take up with, they, they keep up with whether or not that you can take the elevator or you take the stairs or whether or not you can flip on a light switch. They keep up with all kind of stuff. But Jesus is asking a question here, not because the question has ever been asked before. Jesus is asking a question here because he wants to reveal, he wants to expose, dare I say, their hypocrisy. It is not illegal to heal, heal on the Sabbath. He says, or excuse me, Mark says, but the Pharisees said nothing. Looking around at them with anger, deeply grieved at their unyielding hearts, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he did, and his hand was made healthy. At that the Pharisees got together with the supporters of Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. This is the word of God for we the people of God and we say together, thanks be to God. Some translations actually finish with the words at that the, the Pharisees and religious leaders got together with some of Herod's followers to, to come up with a way to kill Jesus so that we're clear this was not just, just destroy him in the eyes of the people, but literally to kill his body. So, so it's clear that the Pharisees aren't jiving with what Jesus had going on. 
But it's also clear that Jesus wasn't cool with what they had going on. Later on, Mark will tell the story that all of the Gospels tell, which is the story of Jesus going into the temple in Jerusalem. And, and what does he do with the tables? He flips them over. It's the tables of the money changers. And he says, he says you have turned my father's house into a, a den of thieves, right? And we know that story. In fact, in fact we use that story anytime you, you want to talk about Jesus getting angry, you can say, yeah, Jesus got angry. Jesus expressed all his emotions. Jesus was a real human. And here's the example of it. Jesus flipped out. Literally, flipped out. Flipped the tables. He was angry at them. Later in the gospel story, when, when they have perverted what worship should be, but let's not lose sight of the fact that that's one time, and this is another. Mark literally says that Jesus was angry. He would, he would become grieved and sorrowful, but he was angry. And it seems clear that he was angry. Do you have that verse, verse 3? There we go. Verse, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. He was angry because he could see what they were watching. And Jesus thought they should be looking at something other than himself. To set the scene, you've, you've got Jesus in the synagogue, presumably with a congregation over here, and there's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, who are standing in the corner, surely with their arms crossed, right, and the, and the mean mugging kind of thing they got going on, they're looking not at the man. They're looking at Jesus. They're watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus gets angry with them over what they are looking at and what they are ignoring. And since none of us want to make Jesus angry, it begs the question, what do we look at when there is a need in front of us? How, how, often, how often have we seen a need, but instead of looking at the person in need, we look at the other people in the room to see what they're going to do? This, this makes Jesus angry. A couple years ago when when J.D. Walt was working his way through the Gospel of Mark, and I, and I was following along in his daily text, he, he established that, that the Gospel of Mark can be considered a long, storied answer to a single question. The Gospel of Mark can be, can be considered an answer to the question, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit lives inside of a human spirit? 
One way to read the Gospel of Mark is to ask the question, what does it look like when heaven comes down and occupies a human? One way to look at the Gospel of Mark is to ask the question, what does it look like when heaven and earth are perfectly aligned? And the answer is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is perfectly followed by a human being. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus gets angry, but he's angry because they're looking at him and not looking at the person in need. And I can't presume to tell you uh, some cataloged list of all the ways that the Holy Spirit occupies a human being, but it's clear in this passage that one of the ways that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us is that it causes us to see people in need and not ignore them. One way to know if the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is that you are seeing people in need and not ignoring them. But then, but then the, challenge, the challenge is, what do we do with what we see? Which is surely a part of this story as well. Jesus is responsive to people. While we, on the other hand, often take a similar sounding word that leads us to a very different destination. While Jesus is responsive to people in need, we too often mistake our role as to be responsible for people in need. And for just a moment, which means about three minutes, for the next three minutes, listen to me play out the differences between being responsive and responsible. See, when I feel responsible for someone else, then I want the outcome to go a certain way. I've, I've done it once before, and I'm now a few weeks away from doing it again. Sitting in the passenger seat with a 15-year-old learning to drive. So all of you right now that are like, Lord, help's gotten his voice, you can stop praying for my voice and start praying for my heart, right? You with me? I'm, I'm a few weeks away from doing it for a second time. But, you, but, but I bring this silly example up to say, right? That when I sit in the front seat and reach over and grab the steering wheel, what I'm doing is I'm taking responsibility for someone else's actions. And the law says I'm supposed to. In that case, the law says that me being the adult driver with a 15-year-old in the car, I'm responsible for their actions, right? So that's a good thing. But, but what happens... What happens when they're not 15? And what happens when they're not behind the wheel of the car? When, when, when I mistakenly believe that I am somehow responsible for the actions and outcomes of another adult, 
and then they don't do what I expect them to do, when they don't do what you expect them to do, we've introduced the opportunity for resentment, for betrayal, for anger, and dare I say, for flipping out. Not to mention, not to mention at the soul level, when I mistakenly believe that I am responsible for someone else's actions and it doesn't work out like I think it should, it introduces shame. The shame, the shame that, that, that sounds like this, well, it would have worked out if you were a better parent. I mean, they'd be, they'd be perfect if you, if you were a better dad. They'd have never gotten into that trouble if you were a better mom. Or, or if you were a better sibling, this wouldn't have happened. If you were a better coworker, this would have never happened. If you were a better supervisor, this would have never happened. If you were a better person, this would have never happened. This is, this is all the stuff that happens in my heart when I mistakenly believe that I'm somehow responsible for them, which is different than being responsive to them. And, and the thing is, just allow me one more second, the thing is, that's just in my heart. What about in theirs? See, because if I live my life reaching over and grabbing the steering wheel that they're supposed to be in charge of, what have I done to them? I mean, when I act like I'm responsible for them, I'm sending the signal that they are not responsible for themselves which can lead to its own level of resentment, betrayal, anger, and shame. And none of it, whether it's over here with me or whether it's over here with them, none of it's good. So, so what would it mean for me to be less responsible for others what would it mean for you to be less responsible for others and instead to be more responsive to people in need? A mother, a mother whose child is now grown reached out to me a couple years back. We talked on the phone and she just shared with me how worried she was about the path he was choosing. He seemed to be resisting her at, at, at every turn. And, and the thing is, less than a week later, J.D. Walt wrote his, his commentary on this very passage. And I got it, and I read it that morning, and I sent it on to her immediately. And before she had time to even check her email uh, or the text that I said, read your email, I called her up. And I still have the note of what I said. I had been praying for her for a week and then God sends into my email inbox this passage and this interpretation of it. And I, and I call her and I say, 
God wants you to be responsive to your son. But to stop feeling responsible for him. I mean, at what age, at what age are we to stop feeling responsible for people? I mean, here's the thing. The newborn, totally right. They, they can't do for themselves. The one-year-old, totally right. They can't do for themselves. The two-year-old, totally right. They can't do them for themselves, but record scratch. The three-year-old, I don't know. How many three-year-olds have you known? Anybody? Anybody raise your hand. How many three-year-olds have you known? Right. Here's the thing about a three-year-old. Every one of us knows this is true. You look at a three-year-old, and while there's any number of things they need help with, you also see them deliberately choose to do some things and then look at you while they do it. What does that look mean? I know. I know I'm not supposed to be doing this but I'm going to do it anyway. I think the first time a parent gets that look, God from heaven is declaring, all right, the shift now begins. You are to be less responsible for them and now more responsive to them. When our child needs help, you better believe you go to them. But being responsive is fundamentally different than feeling responsible. Sometime back, a different mom with a grown daughter reaches out to me and says, addiction, self-inflicted wounds, it's just, it's just led to hurt and heartache, not only for our child, but, but for all of us. All of us. Siblings, parents, job status, just all of it. And, and the mom says, we have done everything we could. Then she says, we've done more than we know we should. We've absolutely over-functioned for our daughter. And, and pray, pray for my husband and I that we would do the right thing to help her grow up. And so this week, same mom, same daughter, she tells me an update. Miraculous. Sober. In meetings has a sponsor, healed relationships, even to the point of a, of a Christmas vacation that was perfect just a month ago. What, what does it mean that we could be the obstacle in someone taking responsibility for themselves? Because Paul says that we are responsible for our own list, for our own stuff, for our own load. We're called to help others, but in the end, 
our stuff is our stuff. And it should stop there. Yeah, I believe the Holy Spirit is directing us to see people in need, but not in an effort for us to be the Savior. I think heaven, I think heaven has its own plans for who should be the Savior, am I right? We're called to see need and to be led to respond on behalf of God, not as if we were God. And I, and I think I think this is a place where, where many of us in the room need to repent. That, that, that for, for so many of us, on the one half of the equation, we've been functioning like somehow we are the be-all and end-all for other people. And we've, we've picked up their stuff and we've put it away, and we've tried to fix this and repair that and, and, and cover a multitude of the mistakes they've made. And I get it. We're doing it because we love them. But if we walk around carrying their shoes for them, even to the point that they are adults, have we really helped them? Or if we hurt them. And, I, and so I, 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 think, I think half the room probably needs to repent of this sin of carrying too many burdens for others. But there's equally another half of the room that needs to be reminded of the truth that we also have to carry our own burdens. That we, that we are also responsible for our relationship with the one who made us. And God's calling us to get right with him. That we would let God be Savior. And that I would just be Scott. And you would just be you. And so I don't know where, I don't know where you are on this half or this half or, or if some of you are more like me and we've just messed it up on both sides, right? But we gather in a place like this to come before the God who made us and made us right that we can get right. And so that's the prayer that I invite you to join with me in now. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have made us to be personally responsible for ourselves. You have made us to be 100% in charge and accountable for our actions. And yet you have blessed us with an ability to help others as well. Lord, for all the ways that we've messed up both sides of that, 
we come confessing to you that we have not gotten it right. And yet we hear the good news that by the sacrifice and blood of your son Jesus, we have an opportunity to start over, start fresh, not just in our relationships with you, king of the universe, but with our relationship with, the, with each other. So this morning, give every one of us in the room the courage to pray that prayer. And lead those in the room whom you are tugging at their hearts forward to the altar that they might continue to have this prayer with you, O oh God, that every one of us would grow in the maturity you have called us to. This is our prayer. And we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen and amen.